Good morning. Um, my name is Jeremy. Uh, if I haven't met you before, it's lovely that you're here with us today. Would you turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 5? We are in a series in this letter, and today is the, the finale of this one. We're going to get through the last uh, set of, of verses in, in this. Uh, Jeff just asked me to just say something, just clarifying a little bit what he said before in regards to the finances. Uh, our finances are very much in order and have good processes that we've been developing the last three or four years. What he meant to say is we're a little bit stretched like a lot of churches and not-for-profits at the moment. We're digging into our reserves. Uh, we're really just um, letting you know as we project forward that if there is some capacity there, we would love your contribution. Right, walking in the light. We're going to read First John uh, verses uh, chapter 5, verses 10 to 21 in a moment. But just from framing thoughts here, there's a, a tech entrepreneur, a middle-aged tech entrepreneur, I call middle-aged, you know, sort of late 40s, early 50s. Um, and uh, this is his regime for a day. He gets up at 5 a.m., and this is the same every day. He gets up as, at 5 a.m., and he has his first of his three meals that he will have which will, be, which will end at 11 a.m. He has a six-hour window within which he eats them. He is a dedicated vegan, and his calorie content of those three meals every day is exactly 1,977 1, calories. After uh, that is to maintain his body fat in between the ratio of 5 to 6% in his body. He will then begin his exercise regime, a very punishing exercise regime that he goes through. And then uh, in that period, he'll also do some of the various tests and stuff that he undertakes on most days. Uh, at 11 a.m., he has his last meal. He, he does his work through the day. And then two hours before bedtime, he goes into a special uh, cylinder thing that blocks out blue light that he spends two hours in there before he goes to bed and sleeps, on average, 8 hours and 36 minutes per night. He is part of a new group of people who uh, believe that death is not some inevitability, but is actually a disease that can be cured. Longevity one is one with it, but I mean, they're convinced that it's something that we can get over. In contrast... This is a French woman. Uh, I, I, my French is not very good, so excuse me, but Jean Jean, however you want to say it, Jean Clement, let's, let's go with that. She is known to, uh, has the record for the longest life lived. So there's some people who claim that they live longer, but they can't actually prove it. And so she lived for a total of 122 years not following Brian Johnson's health regime. There's a YouTube. She died in 1997, which means she was born in 1875. There's a YouTube video, and uh, she's asked a number of questions in this one, and one of them is this. Did you actually meet Van Gogh? She said, yes. When did you meet him? She says, I met him at the end of his life. 
at the very end, he was ugly, (laughs) blighted by alcohol. The journalist, joking at the end, suggested that he could perhaps interview her again the following year. So she's 119 at this stage. And this is what she replied. I don't see why not. You don't look so bad. (laughs) Now use those introductory thoughts because I want to consider today life and death. And I particularly want to think about the term eternal life because John has used it all the way through this letter, but we haven't really, really, really talked about what we mean by that term. If I would say to you to define it, you'd probably come up with all sorts of definitions with it. Is it a quantitative term? Is it something that I have? John is, is famous for his binary kind of things. Things are black and white for John, aren't they? There's light and dark, right? He's, he goes through all these things. There's two categories of things. Things are on or off, black or white, right? And he uses life, and we'll see here, he's introduced in one other place, but here he's going to talk about death. He's going to say it in a particular way, that quantitatively, I'm either in or out. But does it have a qualitative element to it as well? We talk about longevity kind of in life, but we also want to think about what's life worth living for. So we can talk about it in our domain that we live in here, but what is God referring to when he talks about it in a spiritual space? So let's read our text. It has some uh, curly little things in it, which we'll work our way through, uh, and hopefully you'll see where we're heading with those, why we want to come up with an answer. So here's where it starts. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony within them. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given about who? His Son. And this is that testimony. God has given us eternal life. There it is there, right? And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Key verse there. It's the the final time that he says, I've written these things. And in many ways, that's the key one that he's saying. What motivated him to write it, or more importantly, what prompted the Spirit to motivate John to write this, is he goes, I want you to know that there's this thing called eternal life. It's found in Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that it's something that you can securely depend on. It's a settledness that can be in your soul, that can motivate and drive you in your life. He wants you to know that. He wants you to have it. And we looked, uh, um, as we said, there's three tests that he's used right through the letter to say, how can you know this? Because how can you know something that's sort of invisible here? But he said, but there's, there's these three elements that you could look at in your life. The first one is, do, do you know? Do you just know and understand who this Jesus Christ is? There's the culmination of a story of scriptures that started right back in Genesis when God promised this snake-crushing king who would come. Do I know this? So I can have an intellectual test that sits with it. But there's an obedience test. Do I, am I aware? Do I become aware of sin? Do I become aware of the God's commandments and what he's calling on me? But there's also a social one in it as well. I, I have a love for God 
But it's displayed, even though I can't see God, it's displayed in my love for others who I can see. And then my love for others that I can see shows that I have a love for God that I can't, right? So he applies these three tests that we have been looking at. Right, now let's see where he moves from here, because sometimes it looks like he's changing tack, but I want to uh, consider that he's actually not. So in verse 14, he says this, And this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the word prayer is not used here, but we understand this to be prayer, don't we? We're speaking to God, and God is listening. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we already possess what we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. All right, now we've got um, a good little phrase. What is this talking about? He should ask God. Now, I'm going to just pick up, just stop for a second there. Can you see there that in verse 16, about this idea of committing sin, not leading to death, he's talking about asking God, which he's already talked about in the previous verse. So while those verses there, the verse in 15, may have a broader sort of application, I want to just narrow in the space here of saying that there's things that we should and could ask God for and about, but there are things that we should not. And he uses in there this idea about his will. We see that in verse 14. So he's already categorizing it, say there's something about God with his will and our wills are meant to line up with his. But he's got a specific thing that he's talking about here in regards to seeing people in sin and the way that we pray for people who are sinning. Okay, that's what he's got in mind here when he's talking about that because it matches the flow and the context. He should ask God who will give life to those who commit this kind of sin. There is a sin or kind of sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should ask regarding that kind sin. All unrighteousness is sin, yet there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not keep on sinning. The one who is born of God protects him, and the evil one cannot touch him. Right, now let's, let's work our way through this. We have a table. Um, what I want to do is... I picked this up off an author, and I didn't write his name down, but I'll put it up on the YouTube channel when we put it up there. Um, and he goes, you've got to work your way through the, the, the four areas that are a challenge for us in it to decide what this is talking about. And the first one he goes is identify the sinner. So there's a sin that's described, and there's a person who does it. And there's a person who does this one, the sin that goes unto death, and there's a person who does the sin that's not unto death. So the first one, he says, the one that is not unto death, he uses the phrase adelphoi. Often brother, more modern ones are going brother or sister, it's a sibling. It's a family term. It's saying you are seeing someone who's in, I believe, the family of God, the born of God. There's some sense in which they have this eternal life that's been given to them, but they are committing a sin. Now, there's, there's, I'll just say, look, there's different ways that you can understand it. You can, you can read more widely and, and check, and, and, uh, and I encourage you to do that to see whether you agree with what I'm doing there. But I, I think this helps for me in understanding the context and framework. And then the second one is not actually identified. It's not actually, it just says there's a type of sin that leads to death. 
It doesn't actually say that it's the brother, Adelphoi, the brother or sister that commits it. And so I think the, the best way of understanding that, that, because it's not identified as someone in the family of God, that it's actually someone who does not believe in the Son of God, who does not believe that in the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. And so that sin has a death end to it. So the second one is, what do I understand when I say identifying this idea of what is being talked about here of life and death? Now again, we go right back to our, our, our story that begins before the fall. And God says to Adam, the man, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does he say will happen? Finish the sentence. On that day, you will surely die. Now let's think about death. <clears throat> because there's different types of life, isn't there? The main type of life that we think about is a biological life. I'm either alive or I'm, or, or I'm not. And biological life has many things that we see in our nature and our world kind of around it. We would look, we can look down a microscope and we can say bacteria are alive, right? They're, they're getting their nutrients from around and they're replicating and they're, they have a biological life to them. There's a basic kind of thing. They're either alive or sort of dead. But there's other, other types of life that sit there with it too, isn't there? When we come to us, we will talk about a, a, a relational life, like we, we, we relate to one another. There's a life in the way that we live, a social fabric that, we, that we, we talk to one another and we're part of a sort of a community. But the animal world can have it on a certain extent too, can't they? They, they not, not have, have the language that we have, but they can live in communities and bits and pieces, right? So there's a, a community kind of life that sits there. But then there's a third one that, that is sort of wrapped up, and that's what you call a moral life. A moral life. It's heading now towards this idea of sp a spiritual place within our soul. There's a way that we're meant to live. He's, and he's connecting these up in this phrase, because we read that phrase and we go, hold on a second. They took that fruit, but they didn't immediately biologically die. Was God not telling the truth? So what death did they die on that day? There's a disobedience there to the God who is all light, and in him there is no darkness. We brought darkness into our world. We broke the moral code, the moral law that comes from our beautiful Heavenly Father who wants life and truth in us. See how it affected our relational life too. The fabric between the man and the woman broke down. And look, we prayed at the start here for these wars that happen in the world. They start in this place where we fall apart as community because we, we aren't able to love one another in the way that we should. And ultimately, it results in a biological death. We die because of this inner spiritual death that occurs. And the Bible speaks in this way that this life and death we are talking about here continues on past when we biologically die. There's something that happens in where we will go after our body, our tent, is rolled up. And he's saying there's a sin 
that there's sin that is not covered if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he's saying the sin that's not unto death. He's saying that there is an ability to have a, a life. And I want to just go through a bunch of verses in Scripture. I'm not going to make any comment on them. I just want to read them. I just want you to be thinking about how does Scripture talk about this idea of life and death, both as a quantitative thing that I can have, but a qualitative thing that describes what this life is like. Let's go. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was what? Life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a qualitative aspect there. Paul in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, in Colossians, he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Romans again, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Peter talks about this as well, doesn't he? He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To what? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. I have my sin forgiven, but I'm also being brought to God. And then this very important one in John 17. It's the high priestly prayer as he's praying with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give what? eternal life to all those you have given him. But listen to this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's a restoration of a relationship that, that was there before the fall. In many ways, even more incredible because of the fall. So I think he's here Right? I think he's here in this place going, there's a thing called spiritual death, and sin leads to that death. But there's sin that is covered by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's the same in things. What is the sin that is being talked about? Is it a specific sin? Well, I think verse 17, I'll just read it uh, to you. He says this, All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. 
all wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. I think this is the important part of what we're saying in this space, that that the person and work of Jesus Christ covers my sin. Now, I still have a responsibility in that space. Remember, in chapter 1, he says, um, if we confess our sins, he's talking to believers there, you still need to confess your sin. The repentance and confession is a characteristic of a Christian faith. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's a work that is still going on in that space. But I want you to understand the Christian message is a very different message from any other religion. All other religions have some sense in which you work your way towards God. The Christian religion or the Judeo-Christian heritage, because we pick up, has this idea at the heart of it of a sacrificial thing where moral absolution comes through a sacrificial system. It was an incomplete one in Judaism, but it was a complete one in Christ. Where because of the things that I have done wrong that would lead to my death, I laid upon Jesus Christ on the cross in my place for my sin, that the anger that God can have against the evil and sin of the world can be laid upon Jesus, and he is satisfied with what is done. So that now, my sin doesn't lead to death. My sin, even when I commit it, is covered by this. Now, we struggle with parts of this. The the part that we kind of struggle with a, a little bit we see in Christianity today is this idea that God could be angry against sin. I want to quote um, someone who really wrestled with this. His name is Miroslav Volf, and uh, he's written a number of very important books. But I want you to read this quote to comprehend a little bit how he came to understand this concept of the wrath of God and understood it in the fact that God is still loving He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency, the, the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful, at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I think he's bang on. Part of it, though, I think is what us, as we go, yeah, but I've never done an atrocity in a war. (laughs) And some people go, all sin is the same. I understand a little bit what they mean. I think he's saying that in verse 17. All wrongdoing is unrighteous in one sense. But I want to make it clear, not all sin that we do has the same material consequences. 
There, sin it has a huge range in it. And what he is talking about there is on, a, on an extreme end of a range and how it affects people. But John says, all wrongdoing, all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing has some degree of the same fabric of rebellion against God. And so I have to go. I can't do it. But one who loves me has. His name is Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, as we've been learning, who stepped into that space to rescue us. Now, here we come back to his advice. How do I pray for people? You pray for people who you see in sin, and, and this is such an important one because he's talking about here in the fellowship in that place. When we're in a, in a church community, we're meant to hold each other accountable, but we're meant to talk to God about it. He says, when you talk to God, he says, um, I want you to pray in a way that they're confessing and repenting and are restored. He said their sin is covered in one sense and that they will have life. But he said, I want them to come back into that space where relationally they are back properly with God and with their community. So we pray for our brothers and sisters that they confess, repent, and are restored. He says, now this is what he's saying here about not to pray. Please do not ask God to ignore sin. Because he can't. He can't. It's not in his will. It's not in his nature. He can't. He's given us the ability to have sin dealt with by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, what do I pray for there? I pray that they would find this eternal life that is found in the Son. So he's not saying don't pray for people. <laughs> We desperately pray for people. He said, don't ask God to ignore sin and evil because the appropriate response to that is what he describes as death. It's tragic, but it's just, and it is right. All right and I want <clears throat> to... Go back and read through the verses that I, I used to frame that. Think about it, wrestle with it, ask me any questions. I'm very open to chatting in that space. But I want to close with his words that he uses here. As we finish this series about thinking, about walking in the light, I want to walk in the light. God is light. There's no darkness in him. I want to walk in his light, in relationship with him, in obedience to him and a knowledge of the truth, and good relationship with him and with my fellow believers, right? This is what he's saying. And so this is where he comes, and he, and, he, and, he, and he summarizes in some sense. He says, we know that we are of God. This is an encouraging letter to Christians. We know that we are of God. We're also aware that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And yeah, there's a last little line here. It's really interesting. He hasn't talked about this all the way through. And he throws this little one in here. 
He goes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it's a fascinating phrase. He's saying this, there are things in this life, they're not little objects that you have on your mantelpiece, (laughs) but there are things that are there that can be present in your life that take so many different forms that, that you put there in place of where God should be. We could name them in our Western world, right? We, we, we Relationships, materialism, there's a bunch of things that we could name. He said, keep yourself away from those things. Put them in the appropriate place with your relationship from God, and then those things will find the space of where they're meant to be. Now, I love this ending because for me, it helps me in so many spaces. This helps me understand my security. That when I project forward in my life, I don't have to worry about the future and what that looks like because I have a beautiful sense of security in Him. It gives me a sense of significance. I am, I am part of an incredible plan that God is outlaying through this person and work of Jesus Christ. He's drawing, calling people into this thing called eternal life. It's part of his grand thing called the church community that he's, that, he's, that he's showing the world the love that comes through Jesus Christ. It gives me courage. It gives me courage that there's a world out there that's under the power and influence of the evil one. We've talked about this. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. It gives me courage in that space to stand firm. It gives me wisdom and discernment. I can know. I can know the difference between good and evil, what it has called me to and what I should be called away from in this space. But perhaps most of all, it gives me an identity. I know who I am, or perhaps the better way to say it is, I know whose I am. I know that because the person and work of Jesus Christ, that I can be, I am, born again into his family, with forgiveness of sin, with a call to maturity in my life that I grow in my knowledge and I grow in my obedience and I grow in my relationship with him. But man, I know when I wake up every day whose I am. And that's what John wants all of us to know and to thrive in. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful letter. Thank you that through the Spirit in John's life, you spoke these words through him so that we, this day here in Cambridge, 2,000 years later, would read these words, that we would know who we are, that we would know where we have come from, that we would know what our place is in the world and what our general call is in the world and the way that we should live and that we should act and the way should we be. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a security that can't be taken away because of this belief that we can have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That on that cross, in my place, for my sin, the death that was hovering over me was taken away. And by being born again, you gave me eternal life. I pray for every single one here in this room. Father, is there anybody here who does not know Jesus Christ, know him, rest in him. I pray, Lord, that you would move them this day to trust in them as Jesus Christ as their Savior.
for everyone here who knows that truth, I pray that they would walk in that identity and security of it. Would they live this out and grow in maturity, grow in their knowledge, grow in their obedience, grow in their love and relationship with you. Lord, you desire that for us. We just have to walk in the space that you will make that happen in our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.